Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you have joined us. In 1965, the Voting Rights Act passed and gave hundreds of thousands of Americans a chance to vote, many for the first time. It also put a spotlight on the obstacles that are put in place to keep people from the polls. Voter suppression is nothing new. But it has evolved in the years since the Voting Rights Act passed. More recently, we've seen gerrymandering, intimidation through stricter voter ID requirements, accusations of rigged elections, and other tactics used to suppress the voices of many Americans. Our next guest is the author of a book that takes a closer look at systemic voter disenfranchisement. The book is called Uncounted, The Crisis of Voter Suppression in the United States. And our guest is Gilda Daniels, who served as deputy chief in the United States Department of Justice Civil Rights Division and has more than two decades of voting rights experience. Gilda, welcome to Detroit Today. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me. Hi. Thanks for being here. Um, So I want to start with a a story that I tell a lot when I talk about voting rights and how far we've come in a very short time. Um, So my father uh, was born in 1933 in Mississippi. Uh, and so uh, he, he grows up there. He goes off to serve uh, in the Korean War. Uh, and he comes home to a state that will not allow him to vote. He doesn't mm. get to vote in his home state until uh, he is uh, uh, 32, 32 or 33 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, fast forward to uh, his grandson, my son, mm-hmm. uh, who's first understanding of the president of the United States is a black man, Barack (laughs) Obama, right? Mm -hmm. Two generations from not being able to vote because you are black to uh, your only understanding uh, of the president being an African-American. I I tell that as both a story of optimism and hope Mm -hmm. and a story of the kind of historical despair that we have over race uh, and and uh, uh, access to the ballot. Uh, in your book, uh, you are talking about the things that still go on today, uh, and I think uh, it's important to note that you know this is still a fight that we have to to pursue because uh, a lot of people don't believe that, but there are many ways. Uh, in which people would like to send us back, I guess, to that time <laughs> that my father experienced uh, before mm-hmm. 1965. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great uh, segue to the book, actually, because <laughs> I, in the book I use my uh, almost 100-year-old grandmother as the framework for right. looking at uh, voter suppression through the years. Um, you, you're father was in his was 32 when he uh, was allowed to vote my grandmother who was uh, born in uh, Louisiana and lived uh, most of her life in Louisiana uh, and was a sharecropper and the granddaughter of slaves uh, on uh, Cane River Louisiana did not vote until 19 in, until the 1960s wow. uh, and that is because of uh, the Voting Rights Act she was in her 40s although she was born in the United States uh, and certainly could have, you know, she, she, as a citizen of the United States, should have been allowed to vote, but because of the suppressive measures that were in place 
um, through, you know, throughout that time, so after Reconstruction and after after the vote was given and uh, with the uh, with the Fifteenth Amendment. Uh, she was not allowed to vote until the 1960s. And yes, she also witnessed uh, something that she thought would never happen, the election <laughs> of an African-American president. Yeah. Uh, so yes, it, it, I think we can, but we can use history as a way to l- look at these cycles of voter suppression. Yeah. Uh, we've seen that there, when, when there's been great progress, like after Reconstruction, you, it's met with great uh, suppression, right, and regress. And when you see the um, constitutional conventions in the early 1900s that create poll taxes, uh, literacy tests, felon disenfranchisement, and other devices that are meant to um, to eliminate uh, the black vote, and those existed for almost 100 years from the passage of the 14th and 15th Amendments to the passage of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's almost a, a, a almost a century of uh, tactics and devices. Uh, Dr. King called them conniving methods mm-hmm. in his 1954 "Give Us the Ballot" speech uh, that were meant to keep um, uh, people of color from the ballot box. But the Voting Rights Act in 1965 certainly was a. Was, I think by Lyndon Johnson, President Lyndon Johnson, called it a monumental. <laughs> a, a, a monumental piece of legislation mm-hmm. because it's essentially changed uh, the way we access the ballot, and and did it. And uh, Barack, Barack, President Barack Obama actually said that it was the Voting Rights Act that got him elected. Yes. Right, it certainly was a, a, a major part of it because it removed those barriers to the ballot box that were preventing ninety um, percent of African Americans in Mississippi <laughs> from. Uh, from from registering to vote and from casting a ballot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the things I think is important for this kind of conversation today is being able to draw lines between um, things like poll taxes mm-hmm. and things like voter ID requirements. Uh, right. I, I think that's where we lose a lot of people in the discussion, that right. they don't see them as the same thing or even as having the same motive. Uh, help the listeners understand why one is kind of part and parcel with the other. Right. What, think, poll taxes, voter ID, um, felon dis- disenfranchisement in the 1900s and felon disenfranchisement today, mm-hmm. um, literacy tests, uh, all those are certainly devices that have been used in the past to um, to lessen the number, diminish the number of, of of persons who have access to the ballot. Today, we see similar tactics in proof of citizenship laws, uh, as well as voter ID, where you have additional burdens that have that you have to undertake before you can actually access the right to vote. I think, and again, if we go back historically, historically, initially the right to vote was was only for white men who owned property. Citizenship was not a question, right? It was a new country, right? So it was, it was for white men who owned property. And then it evolved with the passage of more amendments on the right to vote than we have uh, or any other any other right, right? We have more amendments that address the right to vote than any other right. Yes. And, and yet, and still... Be, we have 
uh, devices that, although they may be called something different, instead of a poll tax calling it uh, voter ID, it still has the same effect, right? In the Texas case, uh, the court found that there were more than 600,000 people of color, African-Americans and Latinx uh, persons primarily, who lacked the restrictive voter ID that the state of Texas said it was required mm-hmm. to vote. 600,000 people. That certainly can swing <laughs> an election. Sure. Um, and so, and, 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 so and, and the, the, the arguments that everybody can get an ID, uh, um, uh, that they're, you know, they're easy to get and we need IDs to do certain things, we're talking about the fundamental right to vote. This is a linchpin of our democratic process. In uh, the Crawford versus Marion case, that uh, that, uh, that where the Supreme Court addressed the uh, voter ID issue, Justice Ginsburg asked the question: If we in fact want people to vote, then why do we make it so hard? Right, right, right. And and we are making it hard. Right. We have state legislatures <laughs> that are making it hard for people to register. Uh, because they're they have these uh, very restrictive measures that you have to have these particular pieces of identification in order to register the vote. In some states, you know, you only have to in, in, in the state of Maryland where I live, you show up to vote, give them your name and your address, and you vote. Right. In other states, you have to have your um, driver's license or passport or uh, government ID, and people say, well, everybody has a driver's license. Well, everybody doesn't drive, right? Mm-hmm. When they first did the uh, voter ID case, uh, had the voter ID legislation in the state of Georgia, they found that around 25% of African Americans did not have a driver's license. Yeah. Yeah. But a lot of people don't have cars. People don't have cars. Uh, so why would why would you need a driver's license uh, as a as a as a form of identification in Louisiana, where I'm from? You can use you could use a um, a utility bill, your light bill, gas bill, to to verify your address. Uh, so it's so there are many ways that you can uh, verify someone, uh, but when you restrict it to very um, few. Uh, forms of identification, knowing that though that there are uh, segments of the community uh, who do not possess those forms of uh, identification, that is a way to suppress the vote. And uh, and although it's again called something else, it's it uh, other than what we called it in the past a poll tax as opposed to a vote ID, it has the same effect. Hmm. Uh, this and is. Yeah. Uh, this is Detroit Today. I'm 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and my guest is Gilda Daniels. She's an associate professor at the University of Baltimore School of Law and author of a book called Uncounted, The Crisis of Voter Suppression in the United States. We're talking about modern instances of voter suppression and their connection to our history of voter suppression in this country. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Uh, Tell us how you have felt when you go to the polls. Is it harder than it should be? to cast your ballot? Is it, uh, are, are there things that you face at the polls that you think 
look like voter suppression and tell us about what those issues are uh, and and how you deal with them. As always, the number on the phones here is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page and put comments there, or you can go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit Today. Um, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, also call and tell us if you have ideas for ways that you think we could make voting easier uh, here in the state of Michigan or around the country. And is that something we should be doing? Should we be making it as easy as possible to make sure that people can cast their ballots? Uh, or are you somebody who's concerned about the idea of voter fraud, uh, a specter that gets raised often uh, in this conversation? Uh, before we get to the phones, uh, Gilda, I, I, I want to ask you to talk a little about um, how this has evolved over time um, in, in terms of race. Uh, of course, uh, race is is a founding conundrum in this in this uh, in this country, and uh, voting and race, as we talked about, um, has always been a real tension uh, in, in the republic. Um, today, it seems as though uh, the, the the gaze uh, of those who would who would keep people from the polls maybe is expanding. It's not that it's not about race. But that it's about race and some other things. I wonder. I wonder what you make of that change. Well, I think it's, as I said before, it's important to know that for the history of the vote in the United States, initially that right was reserved for white men with property. And, yes. and as a matter of fact, the founding fathers had it etched into our founding documents: the, the Three Fifths Compromise, which would only count slaves as three-fifths of a person for apportionment reasoning reasons, meaning when they're determining the number of representatives uh, that they would only count every three of five slaves to determine what the actual number of representatives for that state um, would be. So as you can imagine, it, it, it provided a, a boost for Southern... Um, representatives, right there, the, the the South actually had uh, uh, an over was overrepresented in the um, Congress for millennia, right for 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 a uh, very long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, when um, so when with the passage of the Fourteenth and Fifteenth Amendments, uh, the the uh, right to vote was given to um, formerly enslaved persons, particularly for men. For black men, and we saw um, um, an increase in the number of uh, increase. Right, we we saw what we actually saw for a glimpse of time what a um, what a fully functioning democratic (laughs) government could look like, where you had representation on the, uh, the local state. And and the congressional levels, we've had we've, we've had more senators, African American senators in the uh, United States Senate after Reconstruction than we essentially. I think we just had where we had three uh, African American senators in the uh, United States Senate, uh, which mm-hmm. was the first time um, in um, since since Reconstruction. Um, so and, and so the power that race had it was that with seeing that those numbers. When you've had the uh, Hayes Compromise, where the federal troops were pulled out of 
the the southern states primarily was then you saw a a, a regression where the state constitutional conventions were had where the the number one um the what where 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 the number one thing that they wanted to do was to eliminate um blacks from accessing the right to vote and they did that again through poll taxes literacy tests and fear and violence right where um there were persons who were killed for voting um and for 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 casting ballots and at that time for voting republican mm-hmm. right because it was republicans <laughs> right at that time, uh, so they um, were uh, killed, and those numbers were dramatic in Louisiana. It was around uh, less than five percent of, of persons, of uh, less than five percent of black persons were were eligible to vote. Hmm. Uh, I'm sorry, were were registered to vote because of those tactics. Hmm. So race has played race. So I, my, race has played a part in the whole time. How, right yeah. from the from the from then. And to, and to now, and now you see, um, we could look to the changing demographics in the United States, where uh, states like California don't have a, a majority population, right? They're diverse enough, uh, and they're, they're, we'll, we'll see that, I think, soon in places like Texas and Florida, where, uh, where there's, a, where there's a div- a, a, certainly a diversity of, of, of races, in the state, mm-hmm. and we see where you have a place where you have um, proof of citizenship laws, which um, which directly affect those communities, right? Uh, where and, and all com- and, and communities of color, uh, because much like voter ID laws with proof of citizenship, you need to provide your birth certificate. Uh, uh, natural, uh, naturalization papers or right, some prove other you're a citizen, right? Yeah. Right to prove that you are a citizen of the United States. So even more restrictive than the voter ID laws in regards to the types of types of documentation that you can provide. And those laws, we saw. I think we saw it first in Arizona, and then we saw it in Kansas. And in Kansas, particular court said that um, that that it could not uh, go forward. That they could, they did not allow the proof of citizenship. Um, a, a proof of proof of citizenship as a barrier or as a requirement for um, casting a ballot, um, uh, because in, in large part the, the um, uh, state couldn't demonstrate that there was there was a need, and it, it created an, an, an undue burden right. um, for um, persons who were um, accessing the right to vote. So I think that's in, so those kinds of devices are uh, primarily impacting, particularly primarily impact people of color, are c- certainly ways that we can argue that race is still a, race is still a factor. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, 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 as well as race. Students have, you know, students do have an issue. <laughs> Elderly people have uh, um, issues. There are devices that certainly impact students. There are devices that impact uh, elderly persons. Uh, but the, all of those devices also, in large part, um, impact people of color. Yeah, uh, let's go to the phones really quickly here. Uh, Teresa in Detroit, welcome to the show. Hello. Hi, Teresa. Hi. Um, Hi, Teresa. The young lady, the guest, is from Louisiana, and I'm from Louisiana. And my yeah. dad was the person 
who brought suit, and I'm not sure whether it was the state of Louisiana, Natchitoches Parish, hmm. but I think it was the state of Louisiana to get black people to register to vote. And he was, oh, it was terrible. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Wow. Teresa, yeah. that's, a, that's, an amazing, that's an amazing historical note there uh, that wow. your dad was part of that. I really, and it's also yeah. amazing because uh, my grandmother's from Natchitoches Parish. Oh, is that right? Yes. Wow. <laughs> Teresa, we're probably cousins. Uh, right. <laughs> it's a very small world here on Detroit Today. Teresa, thanks very much for the, for the call uh, and the comments. Let's quickly go to uh, Levi and Southfield. Levi, welcome to Detroit Today. Thank you, Stephen. Sure. Uh, first of all, I want to. I hope that the comments I make today will not single me out for going back to where I came from. I don't think they want me back in Lithuania, and I don't think I want to go there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Levi. Well, having having said that, I mean, we agree that there's 12 million undocumented people in the country, and to say that they can just show up uh, to vote without any kind of proof of anything, at, you know, to register beforehand. Uh, that to me seems to be extreme. Hmm. Uh, okay, I, I think that's a reasonable point uh, to, to raise. Uh, Gilda Daniels, what do we do about people who are here and um, don't have uh, uh, the, the proper kinds of, uh, of ID? How are we supposed to, to deal with questions like that? Well, we have, well, it's it's this is this is not a uh, for a question that hasn't been answered right, right? because we've for uh, years decades <laughs> we allow people to register uh, and to vote we're talking about two different things right the opportunity to register the ability to register mm-hmm. and then the ability to, to vote to actually cast a ballot for particularly for voter ID you, to cast a ballot you need to have something in some states you need a particular type of ID well there are many ways that you can verify someone's address uh, and um, uh, status uh, without having restrictive forms of ID. And we're not arguing that, um, I think this is a person talked about undocumented persons and being able to um, to, to uh, register and vote. Uh, we have, um, in, in the United States, the vote is for citizens, those yes. persons who are citizens of the United States. And we're talking about the process that um, various, that, that states have uh, that um, restrict those citizens from registering and voting. Uh, and we've had verification processes such as um, uh, you're uh, uh, providing multiple forms of ID, not only just a photo ID, but you, there you can allow multiple forms of identification uh, in order for people to register to vote as opposed to limiting limiting it to yeah. uh, a few pieces of of, registered, of, okay. uh, of identification. Yeah. Okay, Gilda Daniels, associate professor at the University of Baltimore School of Law, author of Uncounted, The Crisis of Voter Suppression in the United States. Thanks very much for being here with us on Detroit Today. Thank you so much for having me. Okay. Uh, up next, we are going to be joined by the national president of the NAACP. NAACP is in town this week for its national convention here in Detroit. Stay with us on Detroit Today. Mm-hmm.